The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. So a couple of weeks back, I was really struck by this scripture we're going we're to be taking a look at. I just found it to be so beautiful. I thought it would be an appropriate way to finish our Advent and Christmas teaching on the Incarnation, a series we've called The Everlasting Wonder. You'll see in a second, I hope you'll, you'll see too why this scripture is so beautiful. But I, I want to I kind of hit on a theme that was already hit on tonight in the kids' lesson, the theme of darkness and light. Now, there's just something fundamental about our queasiness as it relates to the dark. Something almost archetypal about the dark. It's like all people in all places everywhere understand that the dark equals bad. It's not a place you want to go. That's, the dark is, is dreadful. It's where dangers and surprises, not the good kind of surprises, it's where they lurk is in the dark. Uh, think about when you were a kid and you were spending the night with a friend or a grandparent and you've set up the pallet in the living room, you've eaten the popcorn, you know, that place was a, like a, a beacon of brightness, fun, warmth, and safety, and then the sun sets, and the dark settles in, and inevitably the kid that you're spending the night with falls asleep before you do, and you're lying there contemplating the horrors that now lurk in the dark of this friend's house. Or maybe it was your grandparents' house, and they had a furnace that made weird noises, right? And it was like as soon as the dark, as soon as the dark settles in, you're horrified of that place, which, again, just moments prior to this was like, was like the picture of safety and warmth, right? We're now filled with dread, unspeakable at the house of horrors that is little Joey's living room. It's like even in your own house, you're familiar with every nook and cranny, and some of you guys at 3 a.m. when you get up to get a glass of water, you're totally spooked by your own house. When you run up the steps after turning off the lights, you run up the steps, even in your own homes. Right? There's, there's something primeval almost about the dark and our unsettledness that comes from being in the dark. The dark represents uncertainty. It's dread. It's where evil and disaster lurk. There's no peace in the dark. The dark lord, the dark side, dark magic, all of that is just so foreboding, right? It's the dark. Now, darkness is actually the way that the scriptures talk often about the human situation. We live in darkness. Not dimly lit, but darkness. According to the scriptures, like the gospel writer John, like the prophets, uh, like what we'll see here in just a couple of moments in the gospel of Luke, it's dark. Not just it is dark, but we are dark. Dark Lord, dark side, dark magic kind of dark. Humanity exists in darkness, and we're blind to it. We're in the dark about the dark. We're subject to death. We don't know God. We live in ignorance to God and his ways. We walk in the dark. It's the image of being both clueless and corrupted. We're both clueless and corrupted. Clueless about who God is, clueless to God's ways, and we're corrupted. We've been implicated in the darkness. We're susceptible to and complicit in catastrophe. We're people of the dark. It's dark down here. Luke 1. Now, Luke's gospel is all about Jesus, and as expected, the opening chapters deal with the announcement of Jesus' birth. But a bit unexpectedly, the very first story in the gospel of Luke is a story not about Jesus, but about John the Baptist. It's about the announcement of Jesus' cousin's birth, the one who was to be called John the Baptist, who would become the, the, the one who would pave the way and precede the anointed one. The very first story in Luke is a story of John's father, Zechariah, we're told that Zechariah was a temple priest, and he and his wife had got advanced in age, and they could not bear children. But as Zechariah enters into the temple to perform his priestly duties, Gabriel, an angel of the Lord, appears to Zechariah and says, guess what? You guys are going to have a child, and you're going to name the child John. 
We're told that Zechariah is shocked. He doesn't believe initially, and so he's rendered mute on the basis of his unbelief. The next set of stories deals with the news of Jesus' birth being told to Mary, probably more familiar with those scriptures. And then we have this really brief but beautiful moment in Luke 1, 39 through 45, when pregnant Mary visits pregnant Elizabeth. We're not going to read it, but man, it's such a great, rich little moment. It just sort of picture what's taking place in that story. We're told that, uh, that Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and what happens to unborn baby John when he gets in the presence of unborn baby Jesus? It says he leaps in the womb. That's so good. John the Baptist is excited about the anointed, the Messiah, even in Mary's belly and in Elizabeth's belly, can't contain the joy that Jesus' nearness brings to him. And then we transition to the arrival of baby John. Let's read in Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, remember he's, he's been rendered mute, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, an iPad probably, and he wrote, His name is John. Right, Because Gabriel told him that his name was to be John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about all throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Right, so we, we, we have the, the moment of the arrival. John the Baptist appears on the scene. Everybody wonders, is he, is he going to be ZJ? You know, Zechariah Jr. It's like, no, Gabriel said that his name is going to be John. Of course, we grow to know him as John the Baptist. And we're told in the moment of his birth, Zechariah's tongue is loosed. He's been mute for these presumably nine months or so, and his tongue is loosed. And this is what he says. Verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness, and in righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah recounts the promises that have been made to Abraham's children, to God's people, that the Lord would redeem them, the Lord would rescue them. This is the great rescuer that's been promised since Genesis chapter 3, the great deliverer, the one who was going to fix everything, the one who was going to remove the reproach of the people, the one who was going to fix the fall, the one who was going to restore us. He's finally coming. My son's birth announces that God is indeed going to do this. Zechariah prophesies. He recounts the promises and he celebrates. God is going to do this. And then he speaks to this baby boy, 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. He begins prophesying over his son, John the Baptist, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will be the one who points to the giver of salvation. 
You will point to the one. You will precede the one. Pave the way for the one who is going to make it possible for sins to be forgiven. And then this to me is just stunningly beautiful. I love this. Starting verse 78. He says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah says, because of the tender mercy of our God, like a sun visiting us from on high, like a sun from the highest heavens arriving in the nick of time to give light to our darkness, is the arrival of the Messiah. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt visited by the sunrise? Visited by the sunrise. I remember in February of 2013, I, I, I like camping, and I like camping in the cold. Um, my wife is not much of a camper, but I convinced her to go camping with me in February. It wasn't brutally cold. It was pretty cold, but it wasn't too bad. And I've got a sleeping bag that's like a 15-degree sleeping bag. I said, we can share this hammock together in one of those double-nest, you know, hammock things. We can, we, the body warmth thing, you know, we'll, we'll be good. We'll be able to survive this cold. Well, Emily, um, I, I, we were only... Three years, two years and some change into our marriage, and she was, at that point, willing to humor me. At this point, you know, we're, we're more than a decade in, no chance that's happening. Two and a half years, she was a little bit more to, to play ball. Uh, so we went camping together, we, we, we got out there as soon as the dark sort of settles in, and you, you hear the strange noises kind of surrounding the campfire, Emily taps out and says, I'm ready for bed. So we go, and we get settled in for a miserable, awful, cold, miserable, awful night of sleep, or night of wishing for sleep. As Emily shifted around, and she, the, the way it worked is we had a, like a yoga mat that helps prevent you getting cold at the bottom of your hammock, and during the night, she kind of wiggled her way down to where she had all of the warmth, and I was exposed to the windy kind of elements up on the side of the hammock. Anyway, it was a miserable night, and it was cold, and it was dark, and it was awful, and I hated every second of every moment about that camping trip. And let me tell you, if you've ever been in a situation like that, when the sun finally rises and it's like that cold finally breaks, the proper word is visitation. The sun has visited and blessed us this day. That's exactly how it felt that night going camping. And, and, and Emily has made a big deal about it since. And the joke is, she was only four months pregnant or so at that time. So, you know, I, I don't know why the big deal was about going camping in the cold, four months pregnant. Anyway. If you've ever been camping in the cold, or if ever you've been haunted by night dreads, or if ever you've been spooked at a sleepover, in a situation like that, when the sun finally rises, the right word is visited. You feel visited by the sun. Like you have been seen and you have been rescued by its dawning. And when Zechariah prophesies, he, he says, by the mercy of our God, God sees our darkness and he's moved to act. And so Zechariah says that the, the mercy of God feels like a visitation of sunrise breaking the darkness in the form of the one who was promised of old. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So friends, according to Zechariah, Christmas is a sunrise. Christmas is a sunrise. It's the breaking of a new day. It's a new morning. The sun has come, and God is doing something new in the work of the sun. And in verse 79, we're told that by the tender mercy of our God, 
Jesus came to give light to those who sit in darkness and who sit in the shadow of death. One of my favorite scriptures is Isaiah chapter 25. I'll have it up on the screen. Isaiah 25. Isaiah prophesies about how the Lord is going to redeem his people. Isaiah says, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. It's like imagine a thick black drape hanging over us, oppressing and smothering us, blocking out the sun. This is where we are, the place in which we sit. This is life, under the shadow choking us out. But he says, God will swallow it up. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. On Christmas morning, the sun has risen to shine the light on those who sit in the shadow, who sit smothered and choked out under that cloud in the form of Jesus taking on flesh, taking on a body that is capable of dying so that it could be broken, so that it could die, so that you and I, by faith in him, could be freed from the shadow of death forever. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We are sitting in the shadow of death, and then on Christmas morning, a light shines in the form of baby Jesus, who was born into darkness, who embraces the darkness of death and the grave to overthrow it, to undo it, to render it obsolete. I had this realization earlier today. Uh, I was talking about the nativity scene with one of my sons. We, we had a Christmas gathering at my mother-in-law's this afternoon, and she's got this big, ornate nativity scene, and we were looking at it, and you know, he's interested in all the little pieces. And I was asking if he remembered the things that the wise men brought. Remember the, the three gifts that the wise men uh, bring to, to Jesus. It's frankincense, gold, and myrrh. Now, you know what's interesting about those spices? You know what they're typically used to do? To anoint corpses. To anoint corpses. The baby boy in the nativity was born to die. But, but he wasn't born to die and stay there. He was born to die so that death's back could be broken, so that death could be swallowed up forever, so that the shadow of death that is a covering over all nations and all people could be lifted. This baby boy would one day turn graves into gardens, tombs into wombs. He would transfigure the dark into light. And for the believer, just as Jesus was resurrected, so will all his people be, to live forever and ever and ever, basking in his warmth and light, forever, for, forever visited by the sunrise, who is Christ. By the tender mercy of our God, Jesus came to do this. He came to shine a light in the people who are enslaved to the shadow of death. But verse 79 also tells us, by the tender mercy of God, Jesus came to guide our feet into the way of peace. Apart from Christ, we are groping in the darkness, both clueless and corrupted. It's, it's amazing how multifaceted the scriptures kind of portray the, the human situation and how the scriptures portray uh, the, the darkness in which we live. It's like we're, we're, we're all uh, simultaneously victims to this uh, just unspeakable evil we've been subjected to, but we're also all complicit in this. We're also all playing our part in the evils that, have, that sort of permeate the whole. Apart from Christ, we're clueless and corrupted, susceptible to and complicit in catastrophe. 
our sin leaves ruin in its wake wherever we go. We are, we're, we're, we're tur- turned in on ourselves. We're selfish. We're self-interested. We're self-loving, self-focused, sometimes willfully oblivious to the violence that we do to one another. But the scripture tells us the sun has risen and Jesus has come to teach us how to live in the light, teaches us how to be people of the daylight, how to walk in his way of peace. It says here in verse 79. 1 John 1 says it like this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Like Think about what that means, that God is light and in God there is no darkness at all. That means there's no calamity and corruption there's no, there's no funk or fungus that grows in the dark corners. There, there's no infection. There's no sick that's hidden by the dark. God is all light, and there is no darkness in him. And what does he do with that light? He graciously shines it on us and then invites us to walk in it. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Romans 13, Paul says this. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. Paul says, the day has dawned. The day has dawned. The night is over. The night had its season. The night had its time. But it's done. The day has dawned. The night is over, and let us walk as people of the daytime. Let's learn to walk in the warmth and beauty of the light of Christ, Paul says. Jesus came to free us from the prison of living in darkness, and anyone who has ever been in the dark and felt the dark once out, and Jesus brings freedom and sweet relief. The sunrise has visited us from on high by the mercy of God, and he teaches us to walk as children of the light, teaches us to walk in the ways of peace to be people with a posture of generosity and hospitality and reconciliation and forgiveness towards all we encounter. He teaches us to love holiness, to love peace, to delight in the goodness of reconciliation. By the tender mercy of God, Jesus came to guide our feet into the way of peace. But something I love about the imagery of Christmas and the way that we celebrate it is it's just, it's just so fitting to the message of Christmas. In the middle of winter, except in South Carolina, in the middle of winter, in the harsh cold, in the long dead of night, when there's no life left on the trees, there's no growth, there's no harvest, there's no animals milling about, there's no fruit to be gleaned, there's no warmth, there's nothing to be seen. In the middle of the dark, there comes light, who is Christ. There comes a light to rescue us, the people who are in the dark. To, to remove the shadow of death that chokes us out and to teach us to walk in the light as people of peace. The sunrise has visited us in the form of Jesus. That's good news. One of my favorite stories, one that just perfectly captures how Christmas breaks the dark. I remember um, first hearing about this story in, in third grade. A teacher read this story from a children's book. Uh, during World War I, uh, what was then known as the Great War, the, the war to end all wars, and it was a war that was uh, destructive degrees that was to, to degrees that was to up to up to that point unimaginable. Um, the Great War was was famous for the fact that war was for the first time industrialized. We're talking about weapons and death manufactured on a me- mass scale. It was a, a war made famous for its brutal trench warfare. And then one morning in the middle of winter, 
In spite of the fact that the opposing sides had literally entrenched themselves in the wet, cold, bloody mud all over Europe, one 1914 winter morning in an unplanned for, spontaneous, unofficial way, fighting ceased. What was the occasion? Why did the fighting cease? What prompted these soldiers to lay down arms for one day? It was Christmas. It was Christmas. This comes from a captain's letter first published in a British newspaper in 1915. I'm just going to read this. Friday, Christmas Day. We're having the most extraordinary Christmas day imaginable. A sort of unarranged and quite unauthorized but perfectly understood and scrupulously observed truce exists between us and our friends in front. The funny thing is it only seems to exist in this part of the battle line. On our right and left, we can hear them firing away as cheerfully as ever. But the thing started last night, a bitter, cold night with white frost. Soon after dusk, when the Germans started shouting, Merry Christmas, Englishmen, to us. Of course, our fellows shouted back, and presently large numbers of both sides had left their trenches, unarmed, and met in in the debatable, shot-riddled no-man's land between the lines. Here the agreement, all on their own, came to be made that we should not fire at each other until after midnight tonight. The men were all fraternizing in the middle. We naturally did not allow them too close to our line and swapped cigarettes and lies in the utmost good fellowship. Not a shot was fired all night. We also know that they played soccer. They had a kickabout. They released prisoners. They exchanged gifts. They helped each other bury their dead. They hung lights and they sang carols together. Uh, one, one man writes of a, an exchange he had with a German officer where they both liked the buttons on each other's uniforms, and so they cut them off with a pocket knife and traded out buttons. Now, of course, the war ended up raging on for three more bloody years. And, of course, this, was, uh, this was, uh, it wasn't the case all, over the, the, all across World War I on the Eastern Front. They weren't so lucky. But who else has the power to cease wars, to cause ceasefires, to cause fighting to stop? The light of life has come, and the light was the light of men, and the darkness has not, does not, cannot, will not overcome it. And all of this is motivated by God's own mercy, by the tender mercy of God. He's moved to send the sun to shine in on our darkness, to illuminate us in our catastrophe and in our cluelessness. And so the question for each of us tonight is simply, would we believe? Could we see the story of the nativity, the story of the word become flesh? of Mary, the Virgin Mary, giving birth to this beautiful baby boy? Could we see this and believe, and believe that the darkness has been overcome through the light who is Christ? Jesus takes on our punishment and death so that those who receive him by faith could receive eternal life. We we don't conjure up good deeds to merit eternal life. It's rather simply embracing Christ who is the light by belief. We are all in need of learning to walk in the light. And Jesus comes to us and fills us with his spirit and offers to teach us moment by moment through his word and through his people how to walk in his light and learn the, the relief, the lightness of holiness. Instead of seething in the dark, we are freed to life in the light. And the question for each of us tonight is, will we embrace the invitation that Christ offers us? This evening, we're going we're gonna to take communion as a church family. We're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is something that was instituted by the Lord Jesus. The Lord's Supper is uh, bread and juice that picture Christ's body and blood that is shed for his people. Uh, just a moment, I'm going to read, I'm going to pray to conclude our, our sermon time, and I'm going to read words that prepare us uh, to receive the elements. Uh, we're going to have our elders, two of our elders posted up to my right and to my left. Uh, after I read an invitation to the table, 
uh, you can come up and uh, take the elements. And as you receive the elements, just take them back to your seat, and we will uh, partake of them corporately as a church family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we do indeed come to you as those who, who want our hearts to be illuminated by the light of the gospel, by the light of Jesus. We pray that you would help us to see and enjoy and relish and treasure the beauty of the nativity and the incarnation more and more and more. And that you would make us people of the daytime. People who have been forever transformed and forever moved by the fact of having been visited. Visited by your mercy made flesh, Jesus. I pray that you would help us uh, as, as parents as we, as we go away even this evening to, to speak about these things and our comings and goings. To speak to our children about these things. And, and we pray that they would believe. That they would see and they would believe in the good news of the gospel. And we pray that we would be a people, uh, people of light. And that lightness and brightness and warmth and sunshine would be uh, just apt descriptions of the church at Greer Station, of who we are as a church. And then I pray tonight for any folks who are in attendance who have not yet believed, who are maybe just kicking the tires of, of Christianity, uncertain as to what it all means, and, and mostly just curious, and that explains why they're here tonight. And I, I pray that uh, your word would penetrate their hearts and that you would open their eyes to see the, the, the glory and the beauty of the story of Jesus. We pray that as we take these elements in a few moments that our faith would be nourished and that we would be strengthened to keep pursuing Christ and to keep pressing in to being remade into his image. In his name, we pray all of these things. Amen.